Hi there! You're about to listen to a vintage episode of the Under the Microscope podcast. While the content is still as relevant and as interesting as when it was recorded, our webpage has changed. You can now find us at thesciencetalk.com slash real-scientist-nano. Welcome to Under the Microscope. This series is brought to you by the Real Scientists Nano team. Our goal is to provide a platform where scientists can communicate their work and interact with the public. With that in mind, every week we introduce you to a scientist working in the field of materials and nanoscience who would be curating the RealSci underscore nano Twitter account. Hello everyone, today we have with us Chris Spicer, who is a lecturer in chemistry at the University of York in United Kingdom. Hi Chris, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How about you? I'm good. After listening to your science in the short podcast, now I'm really curious to hear more about it and take a deep dive into your research. Um, So let's start with your scientific journey so far. So how did you end up in your current research field? So I took quite a roundabout way to end up where we are now in the research that my group are doing now. So I started off with during my undergrad, I kind of knew that I wanted to do chemistry, but I wasn't had a real interest in biology as well. And so I went and did a, a natural sciences course. And so there are a few places in the UK that offer these quite broad courses where you actually choose three or four different aspects of science and dabble in a little bit of each and then gradually you specialize over time. And so my first couple of years of my undergrad were a real mishmash of um, I did some chemistry. I also did some um, some cell biology. I did a really interesting course on evolution and behavior, which is um, no relevance to what I do now, but was super interesting. Um, and also a course on pathology as well. And kind of over time, I gradually narrowed down those choices until I ended up choosing to do chemistry as my my final speciality. Um, and then when I did uh, my PhD with a guy called Ben Davis in Oxford, um, and in his group, what we were really doing was applying our skills as chemists to um, problems in biology. It was this field of, we call it chemical biology, where um, really you're a chemist using your skills on an everyday basis to manipulate proteins, peptides, carbohydrates, change the way that cells are behaving, things like that. And that was a, a super interesting four years where I developed new chemistries that we could use to chemically modify proteins in a really controlled way. Um, but at that time, I knew I wanted to move to London for my for my postdoc. My um, at the time, she was my girlfriend. Now my wife was living down in London, and so I had a real desire to move down there. But I wasn't sure what I wanted to do too much. I wanted to do something that was maybe a bit more applied, where I could see the see the output of my research, and I could see a real pipeline from what I was doing to the to benefit of of people. Um, and so I ended up doing a, a postdoc with a, with a fantastic scientist called Molly Stevens, who's at Imperial College London. And her group is it's a massive group, about 60 or 70 people at any one time. Really, really broad um, expertise. Lots of people who were from completely different backgrounds. So it was a mixture of um, cell biologists and material scientists. There were some surgeons in the group, some, some physicists. 
and it was this this amazing experience for a real of different skills and, and different disciplines um, and that's during that time that I became interested in this area of biomaterials and, and tissue engineering this idea that we can use materials to repair some of the damage that takes place in people's bodies when they suffer from diseases like arthritis or, or heart failure or um, Alzheimer's disease um, and so that experience really changed the way I, I thought about science and what I thought I wanted to do in my future career and I went on and spent two years out at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm um, which was still under with, with Molly um, where I had a bit more experience of, of running a team and um, also being exposed a bit more to the, medi the medical side of how we can use these materials um, and all of that kind of led me to where I am now so as a, as a lecturer back in, in York. I'm now back in a chemistry department, so back where I originally started. But my group now are really um, sitting somewhere between what I did during my postdoc and my PhD, really. So we're, we're fundamentally organic chemists and, and chemical biologists, and those are our core skills. But we're really using those to try and make interesting materials that we can use for treating and diagnosing disease. And so there's a real um, applied aspect to what what we try to do we try to have in mind but we want to be able to actually create materials that are going to be able to help people down the line mm -hmm. um so i've kind of zigzagged my way through my career up until this point which is now kind of sitting somewhere between everything that i've always done um which is a great position to be in i think um, mm -hmm. the one that i enjoy being in yeah yeah absolutely yeah i mean this is this is so great that you have had so many different lectures so to say uh, and you have done so many different classes and you kind of found your path by navigating through all these different uh, uh, courses or expertise around you and you did mention i think during your grad or undergrad studies that you did a, a course or a lecture on evolution um do you do you see some concept of it coming out uh, into your research like even remotely connected but do you see that not too much no but when i think back to what i remember the only thing i really remember was a course all about gorilla testicles which i'm very glad to say that doesn't relate too much to what we do now um although when you said that so i'm actually teaching a course this year a new course that's going to be all about um process called directed evolution which is a process that people use to try and identify new proteins and peptides that have medicinal purposes and, and so maybe there's an element of evolution that comes into that and, and some of the things I learned but it was it was very applied in terms of real world this is why certain animals behave like they do and this is why human behaviors end up like they do so is a really interesting course, one of the most interesting courses I've ever taken, but um, probably not overly relevant to what we do now. Okay, okay, all right. Um, yeah, I was hoping there is some connection there that, okay, maybe you draw something, but maybe it will come in the future. But no, this sounds, this sounds amazing. So, I mean, you did speak about your current research a little bit. Um, so where do you see your current uh, research falling in this big picture of materials or nanoscience uh, in a broad sense, so to say? Yeah, so in, when I was a postdoc, I did quite a bit of research um, with some fantastic collaborators in the, in the group I was in. 
on trying to design new nanoparticles um, and nanoparticles that we could use to to diagnose disease. Um, mm -hmm. So a couple of those collaborators are, are now going out in the world and have their own groups um, around the UK and in Europe. <coughs> um, but a lot of the work that my group are doing now is really around more creating bulk materials, materials you can actually pick up and, and handle um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but really when we're, we're trying to give these materials interesting properties, what we're doing is we're manipulating what's happening within these materials at the, at the level of the individual molecules, so at the atomic level, um, and integrating biomolecules into these materials as well. And that's really tuning what these materials look like at the, at the nanoscale. What's happening at the nanoscale is really important to what is happening at the bulk scale of a material that you can see, that you can feel, that you can, um, you can actually use. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's really where I see our work in the nanofield is manipulating molecules, manipulating atoms and making them come together as a, an interesting nanoscale architecture um, and using that to, to manipulate how our materials behave mm -hmm. in, in, in a kind of everyday or real, real life manner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, okay, that makes sense, I think. Uh, you're starting... Is it fair to say it's like uh, bottom-up uh, sort of thing uh, that you're the approach that you're going for is more starting from like atoms or not atoms like molecules and well atoms also to a certain extent um, and then making use of them to like changing them taking advantage of so to say of their properties uh, to to uh, for your research basically is that is that fair to say? Yeah, very much. So I think the bottom-up approach is exactly what how we think about when we think about designing new materials. We're always thinking about it from the level of uh, of the molecules, so from the bottom, mm -hmm. uh, and taking those and then seeing what the properties of the material we end up with, and and we use that the properties on the at the at the top scale and the on the macro scale to inform how we're going to design those molecules. But mm -hmm. um, really, the most interesting materials we create are all because of uh, interesting chemistry that underlies it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so it does sound to me that you do a lot of interesting experiments or you are involved or you were involved so far in a lot of interesting research projects. Um, and now I'm going to ask you a, a slightly tough question. I know it's difficult to choose, but <coughs> you had to if you had to pick one research project or an experiment that you're most proud of or the most quirky or fun one, I know it's difficult. Could you choose one and explain it to us in simple words in the section we call In Other Words? Yeah, so I think the projects I've been most proud of is one that I did during my postdoc. Um, mm -hmm. So when I moved from my PhD into this new field of um, of biomaterials, that was a really big step for me. It was it was going from something that I was I was I was good at, I was comfortable at, and I really took myself out of my comfort zone to change my change field of expertise in my postdoc, and I felt very out of my depth at times during that process. But um, one project we were looking at was how we could create materials that conducted electricity um, a bit like a metal 
for example, but will also have the, the softness or the flexibility of something that looked more like a, a biological tissue and how you can combine these two properties within a single material. That's a really challenging thing to do. There weren't that many materials out there that did that in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me a huge amount of work, um, a lot of pain um, to make some of the um, discoveries that we did, but we we managed to come up with this new chemistry that allowed us to make a series of molecules that we felt we could use to make these materials down the line. Um, that's work we published way back in it would have been 2017, I guess, so about three or four years ago. Um, now, but that was a really proud moment for me because I felt like I was using the skills that I developed during my PhD. I'd gone into this new field. I'd found that quite tough at first, but I'd really persevered with it and managed to come out the other end with this really interesting bit of chemistry but more than that we then took that um, chemistry on further I worked with this fantastic PhD student called Kaya um, when I was a a postdoc who um, really took that system that we developed forward and actually started to make some of these materials and um, and started to put cells on these materials and started to use this ability to conduct electricity to provide cells with an electrical stimulus um what we what we did mainly kaya did but as a team was we showed that if we took uh, a set of cells known as stem cells and we stimulated them electrically we could actually tell these cells to grow into neuronal cells so the the, the cells that make up your nerves in your body and, and the present in your brain um and this is really exciting for us because it showed that we could create potentially tissues in the lab that we could then use to treat diseases. So someone who's suffered from paralysis or a a, um, disease that affects their brain, potentially we could grow neurons in the lab that we could implant back into that person. Um, But we could also um, create models that we used in the lab. Instead of having to perform um, experiments on animals or on on human tissue that had been uh, excised from people, we could potentially start to create models of nerve tissue in the lab that we could use to try and identify new treatments for some of these diseases. So that's really exciting. We, we published this work just a couple of months ago. I think back in um, September it came out. Um, so I think that's probably the work that I'm most proud of. It was really doing something that was outside my comfort zone when it started. Um, but I managed to use my expertise that I had to make a really important contribution to that work and along the way I learned a huge amount about materials about cell biology about neurons which I knew nothing about at the start of this project Um, and I really think it was what I'm most proud of is the fact that I managed to use my skills and my my expertise to maybe think of a problem from a completely different perspective to the one that lots of other people were looking at at it from at a similar time and I think that's something really valuable in in sciences even if you don't have an expertise in an area you have skills that an expertise that you do have and it allows you to look at problems in a way that no one else is and that's where I think the real breakthroughs in science come from is from people doing interesting things and quite a lot of the time having no idea what they're doing at the start running an experiment that would uh, experts look stupid but actually comes out and ends up being brilliant in the end and um yeah that's i think that's probably my my proudest moment um and the research projects i'm I'm most pleased with certainly at the moment anyway until until the next one comes out anyway (laughs) 
yeah until the next one comes out that's a very very important uh, important point i mean uh, the, i can completely understand why you picked this as the project that you're most proud of or one of the most proud of let's let's uh, go with that because it does as you correctly pointed out it's when you collaborate and it, it speaks so much for the multidisciplinary um approach to research because when two experts or several experts from different fields come together you can actually make amazing things and make discoveries that actually help humans at the end of the day because for example what you mentioned that if you're growing like a organoid or neurons in the lab and you have sim- they have similar function as they have in our brain you can test the new drugs uh, outside the lab in vitro um, which is very very important and we need that so i can completely understand why you picked that this as your project that you're most pr- one of the most proud of it and I is think yeah <laughs> i think it's so important in the nano field um where we have all of these different areas of science really coming together a nanoscientist isn't a, a nanoscientist they, they're bringing in skills from engineering from materials from biology from chemistry all together in this melting pot and so it's my my PhD supervisor used to say there's a big difference between interdisciplinary, where people are crossing disciplines with a common language and they can have conversations, and multidisciplinary, which is where just two people are doing their aspects at the same time. And, and that doesn't work. You need to be able to have these common languages and to be able to look at these problems from a, a different perspective and, and work mm-hmm. with other people and talk to other people who have a completely different skill set to you. And that's where the most Right. Well, that's certainly where I find the most exciting things in, in science. Right. right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. It's one of the most exciting things uh, of doing science uh, to actually be able to communicate with others, collaborate with others, and yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. Um, I do miss it, though. Um, <laughs> so um, let's go out of the lab for a bit and talk about other aspects of, of your life. Uh, as a scientist, which is to teach. So would you like to talk a bit about which courses do you teach? Yeah, so at York, so I'm in the chemistry department, so I teach two chemists predominantly, although we have a few natural scientists and and biochemists who also take some of our courses. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I teach three courses at the moment. The first is um, a first year course for all of the students take. Um, and that's on it's a course called macromolecules and it's really about polymer chemistry um, Mm -hmm. and how we can how we can design polymers what the chemistry of them is but also how they actually come into the real world applications of some of these molecules and it's really the first example I think of when chemists chemistry students see examples of how the chemical structure of something how how you put together a molecule can actually have a real world impact and can affect the properties of something that they can see in front of them. So we talk about um, things like plastics and how the structure of different plastics can make them either either stiff and brittle or soft and pliable or how they might be biodegradable. And we talk about some of the emerging polymers and how they're being used in things like like, uh, the new, the bendy screens that you see on these mobile phones every now and again whenever there's one of these tech fairs and how the polymers underlie those and the ability of the conjugated polymers to do things like conduct electricity. So that's a really interesting course. It's one I really enjoy. Um, and we teach it from a perspective that we call um, uh, independent learning. So where the students actually do a lot of the work for themselves, 
framed around a teaching, a body of teaching that I um, set out for them. But a lot of it is them really driving um, their learning forward. And they all come up with a, an independent project at the end. They have um, about 20 or 30 of the students each year make videos about an aspect of polymer chemistry that they're really interested in. And these are all out on YouTube. They're aimed at um, A-level students in the UK or, or high school students elsewhere. Um, and the students really portraying what's interesting about polymer chemistry and some of the applications they have. So those are all out there on the internet. Now and there's some fantastic videos that the students make. It's, it's really impressive some of the things they, mm -hmm. they manage to do. They're far better at video editing than I am. Um, and my attempts to motivate them are quite frankly embarrassing um, as I butcher my videos to tell them how they should make theirs. Um, so that's the first course I teach. The second one is uh, I actually teach a course on biomaterials to second year students um, as part of a materials world module. And again, that's I really enjoyed giving that course because it, it gives students an insight into how um, a lot of chemistry students think of ways in which they can help people as being they'll make drugs. That's the big um, area that chemistry students want to go into is going into a pharmaceutical industry. And when they see this biomaterials course, I think they start to see how they can use their skills as chemists to build other types of, of molecules and other types of materials that can have real world impact as well. So that's a really enjoyable course. And then the third one, which I alluded to a little bit earlier, is a new course that I'm teaching for the first time this year. Um, which is on an area called directed evolution, which is an area that won the Nobel Prize back in, in 2018 um, for some fantastic work on um, people who can manipulate evolution on a massively accelerated timescale to identify new enzymes and new antibodies and, and new peptides that have really interesting applications in um, treating and diagnosing disease, but also areas things like uh, biotechnology and, and how we can use enzymes to create new industrial processes and, and make renewable energy and things like that. Um, so that's a course that I am currently writing at the moment, really looking forward to giving a bit later on, um, later on this year. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So I see there is a mixed bag again of even in the courses that you are teaching uh, and especially the last one, it does sound fantastic and um, yeah, it, it would be amazing if you could also sp uh, speak a little bit about that or show your slides or explain what, what exactly are you going to show or teach. Uh, while you're curating the Twitter account, because it does sound fascinating. <laughs> well, I'll be putting together my slides next week, so that that will almost undoubtedly be be part of it. Um, and we, it's a fantastic course. It's a chemical biology course, and we worked out the other day that it actually involves parts of the uh, 2018, the 2016, and the 2020 Nobel prizes. So it, it's really cutting edge stuff. So wow. um, I'm very I'm jealous of the students getting to to learn this course. <laughs> I think I'll be taking it myself. Yeah, it does. It does sound fantastic. And if it, if you could do a, like a crash course for our Twitter followers, that would be fantastic. Like do like several threads. Um, yeah, I don't, no pressure, but I'm just putting it out there. I'm just telling you that this does sound fantastic. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So Chris, um, I, I hope your experience of doing science in general has been wonderful so far. Um, and will continue to be wonderful in the future as well. Um, 
However, if you had three wishes to improve your research experience, what would you ask for? And I'm not promising anything here. Okay? <laughs> right, I'm going to hold you to these. I expect them, expect them delivered in the next month. Um, I, I think the first one is something that every every scientist working in, in academia especially would, would want, and that's more money um, and more people. That's the big limitation uh, for me right now is, um, as a group, we have so many ideas and so many really interesting projects. And I'm someone who gets, bored is the wrong word, but I'm always looking to start new projects. And, and the things that I was working on six months ago, uh, I, I want to get on to the next thing and I want to push things forward. And my, my group have to rein me in a little bit, I think. Um, mm. But you need people to start these new ideas. And, and so I think that's our biggest limitation is we have too many ideas and too many things we want to get going, which is a really nice position to be in. Mm -hmm. But it would be nice to have a little bit more money to hire a few more people so that we could actually get started on some of these projects. And, mm -hmm. and so that's, mm -hmm. that's our goal anyway. If any, any listeners want to donate a, a large chunk of money to our lab, we'd be, we'd be very grateful. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, but, so but let me let me just stop you there before you go on to your second and third wish. How much is too enough money? Like, let's, let's do you have a number in mind? It's like okay, if I get fifty million, then I would be like, okay, this is okay. Do you, have you thought about it? Like, how much is enough? I, I'm not greedy at all. Five million would suffice. So if anyone's got <laughs> five million, they want to donate. Um, but that can be euros. It can be dollars. Uh, I'm not too too demanding. Um, one of the big limitations right now is is money for PhD students. Um, there's a lot of really talented scientists out there who want to do PhDs, and the money available to hire these PhDs is getting less and less by the year. And with COVID, it's that's even even harder this year. So we're waiting to hear if we've got a few pots of money to hire some PhD students for next year. We're, we're hopeful that we'll be able to bring in at least one student, hopefully hopefully more. Um, but we have to wait and see. So um yeah we're talking we're talking about 60 or 70 thousand pounds i think is about the money we need for a phd for four years so um, mm -hmm. yeah we're not demanding at all if anyone's got that down the back of their sofa we'll we'll, we'll take it off their hands and, and put it to good use hopefully super sounds good okay moving on to the second and the third wish go on please <laughs> um so my second wish is something that um is becoming worse and worse as i get older is i want a brain that allows me to remember stuff in the way that I could remember stuff back when I was in my 20s. My my brain is turning to to mush by the week, almost, I feel like. Um, I now have a group of, it's not a big group, it's a group of about seven people, and trying to keep track of what all of these people are doing and all of their exciting results and, and the projects that are going on. I, I find it such a struggle nowadays. I feel like I'm always two or three steps behind the people in my group, and so we have these meetings each week, and and I asked them about how their things have been going on. And and I always quite asked them about things that they'd finished a month ago. My, my, I've just fallen apart as a scientist. So that would be um, my second wish is for my brain to revert by at least 10 years um, mm. so that I could remember anything that was told to me for longer than about 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> and I need to get a lot better at making notes as a result. Um, so that would be my second wish is okay. to go back to my youth a little bit. Um, okay. Get some okay. of those skills back. Uh -huh. okay. And then my third wish um, right now would be to have a fully functioning lab again. Um, so I am 
I'm actually in the lab now recording this this session, but we spoke a little bit about this earlier. Is I'm working from home most of the time, so at least three days a week, most day, most weeks four days a week, um, yeah. due to the restrictions that we have in terms of COVID and how many people we can have in the lab and social distancing and all of these things. And so I think that's the thing that I my wish would be right now, as I'm sure most people's wishes would be, would be to be able to get back to, to normal day-to-day -day life. I realise when I go into the lab, on my my one or two days well how much i miss those interactions with um with my group hearing about their exciting results talking to the people in the office next to me about some of the work they're doing and just having coffee with people and then catching up is is something i miss massively so it would be great to to have my lab back to how it was um a year ago um so mm -hmm. we can keep doing some really exciting exciting science but also just having those normal day-to-day -day contacts as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, all three wishes of yours. It, it, it also, I think the second one is more because of the pandemic. I w I'm tending to blame it on the pandemic, like not keeping up with what's happening because there is just so much that is happening and so much the brain has to process and remember. So let's just blame that on the pandemic. And after it's over, if it still persists, then maybe like, yeah, we need to do something about it. <laughs> Um, and the third one as well. I think it's, it's uh, yeah. I wish I could just do this and be like, yeah, tomorrow when you wake up, Chris, all three wishes are going to be done. You get your five million. You have, you remember everything. Or let's put it this way. You will remember everything you want to remember. Yeah, I think uh, that's important. Yeah. And you get enough time and coffee breaks and human contact and time in the lab. Um, I would like to believe, though, that all these three things will soon happen uh, or will happen in the near future. Let's put it that way. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. And speaking of future, um, what are you most looking forward to in the next three months? Yeah, so the group's coming up with some really exciting results for the moment. Um, so I only started in York two years ago. Um, and so the lab's really only been up and running properly for a year and we're really starting to see some of those projects that we got started mm -hmm. start to generate results now. And we've got really exciting preliminary results. I'm really looking forward to seeing how they come together over the next couple of months. There's, there's one project in particular that we're working on, which is trying to come up with a really powerful way that we could chemically modify pretty much any protein that we would what we would could pick and do that in a selective and a controlled manner if we could manage it it would be a really powerful tool not just for us but also for the for the science community in general and we're, we're just at a point now where we have in place all of the things we think we're going to need to be able to test this idea so the preliminary work is done and so mm -hmm. that's what i'm really looking forward to getting my teeth into over the next three months is really testing out this idea and seeing if it comes together mm -hmm. um, because if it does, it's going to be a really, really big step for my group, but also a really exciting result for the community, I think. So that's, yeah, I think that's what I'm most excited about is, is seeing how that progresses mm -hmm. over the coming mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, then looking forward to that paper coming out sometime soon next year, early next year, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah, it's always the plan, we'll see. Um, we'll, we'll make sure we get but the system works first, but yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll be getting it out. Uh -huh. next year hopefully we'll say 2021 but we'll, we'll go with that ambitious goal yeah let's we'll stick with 2021 yeah <laughs> they always take longer than you expect but um yeah i'm, I'm hopeful
Yeah, well, that's, that sounds amazing. That sounds cool. Exciting stuff, exciting science coming out uh, in the next three months, hopefully advancing. And I really love the fact that you said it's not just good for my group, but it's also good for the scientific community. So it's not just us, but it's the science that is moving forward. And it's a good next step for the science itself. So this has been wonderful, Chris. But before we let you go, I want to ask you one last question, which is, what do you think are the challenges faced by the materials or nanoscientists of today? Like, what are the big questions they are trying to answer at this point? So I think one of the biggest challenges we're facing is, is a really big disconnect between um, what happens under really controlled conditions in the lab when we're designing these technologies and we have everything perfect and, and we don't have any variables in there and what actually happens in real life in the human body or as soon as we introduce human subjects into that. Humans are, are the biggest variable there are. Every single person is different. They're not just their personalities but their biology, the way their body works is, is completely different. If you look at a uh, a seven-year-old little girl or, a, or an 85-year-old man. There are, there are so many different things between those two people. Mm -hmm. And yet a huge amount of the research I think that's, that's done out there now is, is reliant on, on these very controlled conditions and a very specific target. So a treating a, a healthy 25-year-old who's suffering from this one particular variant of a disease um, in a lab where nothing changes. And so I think being able to come up with new technologies that, that can bridge that gap, that can actually are more widely applicable and that do behave as they should do when you take them out into the real world is really important. I think we're, we're seeing this with, this with this idea of creating COVID tests right now. And you see so many papers out there now of we have this new rapid test that allows us to diagnose COVID in 10 minutes. And the practicality of it is that when you actually go out into real world populations where you are relying on um, volunteers to take nasal swabs or to, um, do, to do blood tests, there's this variability not only in terms of how each different person and their biology looks and, and how the disease is affecting them, but also how each of your volunteers is going to take that nasal swab. These are, these are huge variabilities that I think the literature doesn't reflect right now and so that's what I see as the biggest challenge is how we can start to make things which are don't just work in the lab but work in real life scenarios and I think that's the only way we're going to start to see the huge promise of nanotechnology and material science actually start coming to fruition um, mm -hmm. and there's, there's so much promise there's so many technologies out there that you look at or you read on the on the BBC website the a popular news website in the UK for those of you who aren't based here and it says look, we've managed to cure this disease. We've Scientists at X, Y, and Z University have, have come up with this technology and it's going to change the way we look at things. And then you read it, it's like, no, you've managed to cure a mouse of a disease that you've created. And it, it, they're not the same things. Um, and so I think part of, the challenge is, part of the challenge is how do we bridge that gap, but also how do we um, address how we, how we, present that science to the general public as well. And how do we how do we prevent ourselves from being misleading um, a lot of the time? But the world is going to be revolutionized when actually a lot of the technology still needs to be developed. The science needs to mature before we 
before we get to that stage. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's, it's not just a need for scientists to develop new technologies, it's an also a need for more responsible behavior amongst scientists of, of how do we portray our results, how do we sell that and, and not make out like we've cured diseases that we haven't. Um, I think that's a really big challenge that the community needs to needs to address as well as one that that scientists, individual scientists need to address. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's actually a very good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, being mindful as a scientist when you're reporting your own science and going about your own science, like keeping in mind of the variability and not just that, okay, this test works in the lab, but also how, making sure that it works in the real world. And also how this information is being communicated to non-scientists that don't say that you're curing cancer when you are curing probably probably curing a, a tiny tiny piece of a puzzle yeah so, <laughs> so this is a fantastic example is that a large number of tests are based on a urine test in the same way that pregnancy test is mm -hmm. and you can buy something called synthetic urine you can buy this from chemical companies all across the world and they have made a chemical that behaves like urine does it, mm -hmm. it's not actual urine it's synthetic it's entirely lab made but if you if people demonstrate that their technology works in this synthetic urine they say this would work in in normal human urine but everyone knows if you haven't drunk enough water or if you've been down the pub and have drunk 10 pints of beer your urine is going to be completely different there's so much variability just within a single person on on what your wee looks like and and yet this is something that everyone works to the same precise standard composition as being what urine looks like and it, it, it's just not it's just it, it doesn't translate to the real world it's a massive challenge how how we address this mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the key is then to be responsible and be, think about things logically and don't just make claims without proving anything because you can't always prove everything. But yeah, yeah, but that's a very good point. It's a, it's a very big challenge and good that you uh, pointed it out and also explained it, the need for this question to be answered or let's say the situation to get better. Um, so thank you very much for that. I enjoyed learning about your science. Your science is so cool. And I'm really excited about specifically this course that you're creating right now. The evolution and the chemistry and all, it sounds so cool. And I also feel the pressure to be productive this week so I can actually get on to, to making my slides next week now. Yeah. Uh, yeah but thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed, enjoyed speaking to you. Oh, wonderful. So thank you very much. Looking forward to having you on Real Scientist Nano Twitter account. Thank you, Chris. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To know more about us, please visit our website, realscientistsnano.org, and follow us on Twitter at realsci_nano. underscore nano.